two very different statutes within a or a two hunters of Edinburgh Theological Seminary in the old town of Edinburgh. Two statutes. One is at the busiest crossing of the Royal Mile, the road that runs from the castle to the palace. It is of a man dressed in a Roman or a Greek toga, very odd in the Scottish climate, with a bare chest and legs, sitting and reading an unknown book. It is David Hume, famous or infamous, for denying the possibilities of miracles, including the resurrection. This man, Hume, held that a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature and firm and unalterable experience has established these laws. And any evidence or experience of any miracle needed for Hume to be attested by a sufficient number of men of unquestioned good sense, education, and learning so as to secure us against delusion. And of course, the testimony of such man, he felt, was lacking. And to round it off, he stated, miraculous relations are observed to abound chiefly among ignorant and barbarous nations. Now his criteria for those to establish the evidences, although probably entirely politically correct in his day, are today of course understood to be embarrassingly elitist, sexist and racist. And the idea that the truth can be verified by evidences has shown to be a logical impossibility. And Hume's ideas have long since been debunked, and in fact, as an empiricist, he himself drifted into skepticism. But he still sits there, on his pedestal in the center of town, I think, underdressed and overrated. Now, the other statue was once upon a time also on the Royal Mile, where the man lived. But the Scottish academic and political establishment decided to move this statue to the inner courtyard of New College, where no shoppers, no tourists, no festival goers come, only the sporadic visitor to the Theological Library of Edinburgh Uni. And this man is also holding a book from which he is preaching, the Bible, from which he indeed fearlessly preached to all, including the ruling classes of his day, most notably the Stuart Royals, who held to their divine right to rule as absolute monarchs also in the church. But he claimed the church to be the regiment of his risen Lord Jesus.
And that statue is of John Knox. Now, this scenery in Edinburgh is probably pretty representative of the views of many other establishments, politically or otherwise, and of the celebrities, the bigwigs, the influence, the the talk showers, the opinion leaders and assorted others today when it comes to the resurrection that we celebrate this Easter morning. But we will leave that scene behind us and confidently and joyfully turn to the greatest and the best news ever, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And as we do so more specifically to this gospel, the good news in John 20, and we immediately note something very intriguing. John probably wrote a few decades after the other, the Synoptic Gospels. And the reports there about the resurrection were already widely known. And so John decided that it was useful to let his version largely consist of relatively long stories of the personal encounters of two witnesses. And both were, at the first glance, very unlikely witnesses, which nobody really would choose. Mary the Magdalene, a weeping woman, and Thomas, the absent and doubting disciple. And Lord willing, we will listen to the story of the doubting witness sometime soon, but this morning our meditation will be on Mary the Magdalene, the weeping witness to the resurrection. And we will reflect on three questions. Who she was, what she was asked, and what her testimony is. So Mary the Magdalene, the weeping witness to the resurrection, who she was, what she was asked, and what her testimony is. Now, you may well immediately raise a prior question. About whom is this story? Is the story not about Jesus rather than about Mary? Well, ultimately, of course, the gospel is about the Lord Jesus. And one could extract all the information about Jesus in this chapter and recite then the doctrinal conclusions in the appropriate language of Christology and soteriology and so on. But that is not how the evangelist presents his story. John narrates the story of Mary the Magdalene. And therefore, we will travel with and through her and her human experience to our meeting this morning with our risen Savior. So first then, Mary the Magdalene, the weeping witness, who she was. Now, I guess very few people today 
We'll start with Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible when they're looking for an answer to the question who she was. Today we are more likely to turn to the Internet. And of all the weird and wacko things you can find there, right from the beginning, Mary de Magdalene was presented in theological writings, initially most notably the Gnostic writings. And then she appears in all kinds of miracle stories all over Europe. Allegedly, she may have made it as far as France. She appears in literature, in novels, trash or otherwise, think about Dan Brown, in films, Martin Scorsese, The Last Temptation of Christ, in music pieces, Oratorio, Motets, Maria Lugens, The Weeping Mary, and in an endless procession of paintings. It seems that nearly all great European painters created their own version of Mary. Tiffian, Rubens, Raphael, Leonardo, Veronese, El Greco, Varweiden, the painters in Russia, and then there are the many icons of the Eastern Church, and many, many others. And in all churches that do saints, she is one. And in the Roman Catholic saints' hierarchy, she ranks next to Mary, the mother of Jesus. July 22 is her day. And of major influence on how she had been seen was an Easter sermon in 591 by Pope Gregory I, who conflated, or maybe better confused her, with the sinful woman anointing Jesus' feet in Luke 7. And thus he turned her into a repentant prostitute. And he explained the driving out of the seven demons as Mary's repenting of the seven Roman Catholic deadly sins. Now, Pope Paul VI reversed this view, but it persists in popular culture. And in the many paintings which make her either the very picture of penitence or show her provocatively dressed or underdressed. But the only reliable information about her is to be found in the Gospels, where she is mentioned 12 times, more than some of the disciples, and next to Mary, the Lord's mother in frequency. And the first time we meet her is in Luke 8, which we read. And then she is reported to have been at the Lord's cross till his death, and she is mentioned in all the Gospels as the first or the only named woman to go to his grave on Easter Sunday. And her name probably indicates that she was from Magdala, a fishing village on the shores of the Sea of Galilee with a migdal, the Hebrew word for a tower. And as mentioned, the first thing that we hear about her is that seven demons were driven out from her by the Lord Jesus. Now, being demon-possessed in the New Testament time was often a description of suffering 
from a severe mental illness, ranging, as it is today, from anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, to being bipolar or psychotic or suffering from some other affliction. And it seems likely that Mary de Magdalene was a woman suffering from one or more of these disorders, and probably in a very serious way, thus the seven demons. She may also have been well-to-do, which of course is no protection against illness, since she is reported to have supported the Lord Jesus during his three years' ministry, and she indicates in our text to the gardener that she can take care of his body, which certainly not every woman could afford. And she is reported to have been a devout and devoted follower of the Lord, who was still there at the cross when, apart from maybe John, the other disciples had fled in all directions. And it is also clear that she had not yet understood what the Lord had been saying about who he really was and what he had come to do. John's Gospel makes quite frequently use of the contrast between light and dark. And he noticeably writes that when she sets out this Eastern morning, it is still dark. It may have been close to dawn, because once she gets to the grave, things can be seen. But Mary was in a dark place. In the dark, literally maybe for a few more minutes, but also spiritually till much later. Mary thinks that her beloved teacher is dead and that all that is left to do is to pay respect to his remains in the grave. And it makes her weep. So when we ask who this witness was, we have to understand that she, in the eyes of the world, was one of the most unlikely, ineffective, and impossible witnesses that one could select. A woman who in the ancient Near East, including Israel, didn't count for much. Trying to teach them was a waste of time, and they could not be admitted as witnesses. And then a woman with mental illnesses, which at that time was considered being demon-possessed, crazy, and certainly not to be relied upon to speak the truth when stating that someone had risen from the dead. And even as a devout and dedicated follower of the Lord, she herself was still completely in the dark. But John guided, as we believe, by the Holy Spirit, considered it important to add precisely this witness to the already existing reports. And we may assume that he did so because it was the Lord who selected this witness. And here, there is our first lesson to be learned. With the resurrection of the Lord, the kingdom of God was breaking through in the world, an event of unequaled magnitude. And as evidence of this breaking through, 
the only ever-existing certainty, the certainty of death, other than maybe some say the tax man, was conquered and vanquished. And the reign of the devil was terminated and the reconciliation of God with his people was achieved. And in recruiting his witness, the Lord also breaks through the restrictions and the limitations of tradition, political correctness, and culture, and society. And he had done it before. When he spoke at length with that social outcast, that non-entity that so embarrassed the disciples in John 4, the Samaritan woman, whom he also made his envoy to her village. And in a way, you may say, he had even already done it in the Old Testament when he led Ruth to take the initiative to ask Boaz to spread the wings of his garment over her, to be her Goel, her Redeemer. I don't know how common it is for ladies today to take the initiative But this proactive, clear request from Ruth to Boaz to marry her to be her redeemer was most likely totally not done in the ancient Near East society. And here the Lord does it again. Now maybe not all, but many of today's attempts to change the cultural attitudes and traditions towards women, mental illnesses, and marginalized minorities may be welcome. They're also, compared to the Lord Jesus, a bit late. Now, breaking through the conventions and the opinions of society at the time, the Lord recruits all sorts into the service of his kingdom. Mary, the woman with a history of mental illness, was selected as what the old church called the Apostola Apostolorum, the Apostle to the Apostles. It was her who was to be the first witness to the resurrection, and the woman was told to go and tell the Apostles, who were still scattered in hiding, about it. Never mind what kind of man Hume deemed suitable to verify the evidences. And nor is the calling up for duty in the church limited to gray-haired, bold, or bearded men, as in elders. And nor the witnessing, the call to witness to ministers, senior or otherwise, but the call to look for him and to him, to seek him as your savior, and to serve and to witness, does the Lord go out to all, whatever your gender, race, social position, or mental or physical health is. And that is what Mary the Magdalene tells us as the first witness recruited. And then secondly, Mary the Magdalene, the weeping witness, what she was asked. Because she is now recruited as a witness. But what questions was this witness then asked? 
Well, as you have seen, three questions. One by the angels and then two by the Lord. He repeats the angel's question, which he really hadn't answered. So there are really two questions. In Greek, only five words in verse 15. And yet they are worthwhile reflecting on. For we need to consider that the Lord did ask Mary these questions and also that John decided or was guided to report them. Now, the Lord did not ask these questions to solicit information. He already knew where Mary was and what her state of mind was and what the answers were. With these questions, he wants to guide her into a certain direction and make her realize certain things. But these questions could, and indeed would, if John had not reported them in his gospel, have gone unreported and Mary would have taken the knowledge and the understanding that she had gained to her grave. But they are recorded. Recorded so so that also we may benefit from reflecting on these questions. Mary was in a dark place. Her teacher, the Lord, she thought was dead. And all that remained, and for this she had only limited time, was the search and care for his body. No hope, no light was left. And that is the place where we, at times, may find ourselves. Maybe we have spent the better part of our life so far on the sunlit uplands of life. But for most of us, there will be also the valleys of the dark days, when life feels like a drag and a tunnel long and dark, and the horizon seems closed. And now Mary was asked, Whom are you looking for? A dead body? Should you not be looking for your risen Lord? And we, prompted by John's report of the Lord's question, should ask ourselves, when we are in a dark place, whom are we looking for? It is, in a way, the same question that the Lord asked the disciples in Matthew 16. Whom do you say I am? Who is the Lord for you, really, personally, in daily life, when it is great and when it sucks? Many, like Hume, cannot believe the resurrection. And oodles of theologians have embarked on the quest for the historical Jesus. When we strip away the New Testament invented stories of a son of God who rose from the dead, who was this man? A good moral example for nice, decent, civilized people? like he became for the liberal Protestants? Or an inspiring revolutionary leader for the poor and the oppressed in society, like he became for the Catholic theologians in Latin America? Or an ambulant teacher, a do-gooder in the Palestine of the past, of no particular relevance, like he became for so many others? Or is he the beckoning God, 
the Christ you know about but have not yet personally connected with, the thought for later. The one you are looking for in your life, is he really the one that John presented to us in his gospel? Right in chapter 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. About John, about whom John says in chapter 13, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And then, who says in chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you also may be. And then in in chapter 15, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. For this is the risen Lord whom we should be seeking. And when it is him, the living Lord who loves us, that we are looking for and looking towards, then also, always, in every situation in life, we can deal with that other question, why are you weeping? You see, the angels had already asked Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? And in her distress, she didn't even hear or answer the question. She may not even have registered there were angels. Her mind remained stuck, and she continued downhill of her own dark thoughts. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And then Jesus asks her again, Woman, why are you weeping? Do not weep for the disappearance of a dead body, but look for the the reappearance of the living Lord. Mary, why do you cry? Once you really realize who I really am and what I just through my death did for you, then there is no reason for sadness or tears. But you see, Mary was so preoccupied with finding his dead body that she did not recognize a living Lord when he spoke to her. And then the Lord calls her very personally and very directly. It may not come through in the translation very well, But the Greek changes from Mary to Miriam. 
It is not the Greek version of her name, Maria, but the Hebrew name of her youth, of her village, the name her mother would have called her by, Mariam. And as John says in chapter 10, verse 3, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them. And sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And upon hearing him call by her name, Mariam, all the anguish and the despair there instantly turned into astonishment and delight. And she responds also in the dialect, Rabuni, teacher, because she has recognized her Lord as standing alive before her and calling her. And that is the second lesson from our text this morning. Whatever your situation in life and whatever the struggles and the challenges are, and there are enough today, look for Jesus, our risen Lord, who conquered sin and death. Meditate on him in all the power, glory, and love that John portrays him for us. And listen to his call through Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And you see, that is not some general call, like from some railway station loudspeaker, which may or may not concern you, but since you are here and listening to the message from John's Easter Gospel this morning, he is calling you in person, by name. And he is asking you the questions. Whom are you looking for? And why are you weeping? And he is inviting you to travel Mary's journey from darkness to light. Not to cry but this Easter morning to rejoice in your risen Savior. And then the 16th Psalm will come to life for you. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You make known to me the path of life, in your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. And then thirdly, Mary the Magdalene, the weeping witness, what her testimony is. Now the scene we have just meditated on is followed by another somewhat puzzling, enigmatic event in verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go up to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now what does this mean? Why is there the admonition not to touch or cling? For normally gives a reason. But what is the reason? 
Now, also, this scene has been painted again and again through the ages, often with the Latin translation of this verse in the Vulgate as the title for the painting. Noli me tangere, noli me tangere, do not touch me. And the pictures usually show Mary has fallen at the Lord's feet and embracing them, and he gesturing her not to, to do so. And the Latin version has also led to many English translations saying, do not touch me. But why could Mary not touch the Lord? In Matthew 28, verse 9, it is reported that woman, after the resurrection, touched him without any problem. And Thomas, in the following section, is explicitly encouraged, if not instructed, to touch the Lord. So why? Well, most likely the ESV with do not cling to me or the NIV do not hold on to me are the better translations stressing the durative aspect, aspect of the action. And the explanation is maybe then twofold. There is a practical, a very practical exhortation. I will be on earth in human form a little while longer till the ascension. So there is no need to cling to me like I might disappear on you any moment. But instead, I do want you, Mary, to go now to my disciples. As it says in verse 17a, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them. You see, her immediate task was to let his feet go and to get her own feet moving. We saw that under point one, the apostola needs to go and witness the resurrection to the apostles. But maybe there's also another more fundamental reason. And that is explained in what follows in verse 17b. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And there the Lord is explaining to Mary and to us that his way is not backwards, but upwards. You see, Mary had refound her master. But the things are not going back to the way they were before his death. His stay on earth as an ambulant teacher telling the people that the kingdom of God is about to come are over. And Mary will no longer be traveling around with him for the Lord will return to heaven. You see, the cross and the resurrection have occurred and the kingdom now has broken through. And the task the Lord Jesus had come to fulfill has been accomplished. And the suffering as punishment for our sin, it has achieved our redemption. And the confirmation of his victory over devil and death has been given when he rose from the grave, the empty grave that she had been looking at so uncomprehendingly. And instead the Lord, as he stated in chapter 14, verse 1, which we heard, will go to prepare a place for us, with the Father. And he reconfirms to her that he will have to go soon, as he had said so many times before.
And therefore, now the message is to his brothers, note that term, is I will ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. For the relationship in paradise that had been broken at the fall has been restored. We have been restored as the children of our heavenly father and adopted as his children again. The cross from just three days ago dominates history and it brings creation to its full circle as it was in the beginning in Genesis 2 verse 2 so it will be at the end and that is the lasting testimony of Mary the Magdalene who went as the witness sent and told the disciples I have seen the Lord and he said these things I have seen the Lord, and he said these things. It is also the third lesson from our text this morning. The task is accomplished. The atonement achieved. The peace has been restored. The preparation for the reunion will be made. And the risen Lord sits at God the Father's right hand in glory, from where as our priest, as he, is, as he is called in the letter to the Hebrews, he is interceding for us. And for the here and now, he has promised us in Matthew 28, and surely I am with you always. So briefly then and in closing. Mary the Magdalene started her journey on this Easter morning nearly 2,000 years ago in darkness literally but in John's gospel also spiritually she loved her teacher but she had fought too little of him and that is the mistake we should not repeat because she had not understood the greatness of his good news and she was weeping blinded by tears in looking for the dead master she did not even recognize a living savior do not make that mistake. And many sins, equally blind, have been denying the resurrection from the lying, bribing Jewish establishment at that time all the way to the time that the authorities and the dignitaries were putting up Hume's statue. But maybe there is an unintended irony in them hoisting this emperor of their enlightenment onto his pedestal with so few clothes. For his views on the role and the importance of the so-called evidences against miracles and the resurrection have long since been found unsustainable. But the witness of Mary the Magdalene still reverberates through time. You see, women didn't count for the Jews of the time. And the disciples didn't believe them in Luke 24 because they thought they were talking claptrap, rubbish, nonsense. And Mary the Magdalene, a woman with most likely a history of mental illness, would not have been acceptable to Hume as one of the men of unquestioned good sense, education and learning qualified to verify the evidences. But the Lord of heaven and earth called her out of her dark misery 
and called her very personally by her name, Mariam, to be the first witness to the resurrection and witness to the most important fact in history, the completion of his saving work. And through and with her, he is calling all sorts, including you and me, this morning, directly, by name. And he is asking us these Easter questions. Who do you think I am? Who am I for you? And if life is different, whom are you seeking? What kind of savior are you turning to? And once you realize who I am and how much I love you and what I have accomplished for you, then man, woman, why are you crying? Because when we look at Jesus, our loving, risen Savior, we can always rejoice with the words of this song. Jesus Christ is risen today, our triumphant holy day, who did once upon the cross suffer to redeem our loss. Hymns of praise then let us sing unto Christ, our heavenly King, who endured the cross and grave, sinners to redeem and save. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you to thank you for our risen Savior and for your and his love for us and for what you have achieved at the cross. And then for making sure that your witnesses were recruited and have gone out and that the message has come to us. And Father, help us to always keep that before us, to live with it and by it, whatever our situation is in life, and, Father, we bring before you that the challenges of life are, of course, many. Some may not be known to others, but they are known to you. And you are the Good Shepherd. You are the one reaching out and calling us by name, so that we do not go through life alone, but that we may be going with you in joy, in gladness, when we think about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Amen.